Hey, Changemaker, it's me, Julia Wicklander. This conversation was incredibly important to me and I'm so excited to share it with you. My guest today is Marit Törnqvist, a Swedish-Dutch illustrator and children's book author who has worked with Astrid Lindgren for many years, you know, the author of Pippi Longstocking. Marit Törnqvist's own books have been translated into around 20 different languages and she has participated in exhibitions and won prizes all over the world. At the end of May 2022, she was nominated for the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award for the 14th time. And since 2015, Marit Tanquist has initiated various large book projects for refugee children in different countries. In Sweden, she took the initiative for 30,000 picture books in Arabic to be distributed at refugee camps in March 2016. She has initiated an anthology in Arabic for refugee children in the Netherlands and organized a large author's tour at refugee camps in the Netherlands. Marit also works actively in the book project Read With Me in Iran, which provides the most vulnerable children, um, including Afghan refugee children in the country, access to books and workshops. Since 2017, Marit has been involved with a group of refugees from Afghanistan who, despite strong reasons for asylum, risk deportation. And on International Refugee Day this year, 2022, Marit attracted attention with the installation, The Big Loss, outside the parliament in Stockholm. In this conversation, we talk a lot about her own journey um, to sort of unintentionally becoming involved with um, refugees in Sweden and in Europe um, and she shares really intimately her own story um, and the the reasons behind her work uh, quite recently. We also talk about sort of the situation in Sweden um, following the election and also leading up to the election this year and um, it's really a conversation about hope and I really feel so incredibly inspired and um, it's incredibly inspiring also for those of us or for you if you're a change maker who would really love to use your creativity um, or your art as a form of advocacy, as an advocacy tool. Um, and yeah, Marit is incredibly inspiring and I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Marit Turnquist. Hi. Such a pleasure Hi. to have you here on the Hey Changemaker podcast. And I'm just so happy that you um, are willing to share your story um, and your journey as a changemaker. Um, and I've shared about who you are, but I would love um, for you to start off to share a little bit um, about the start of your journey, um, because you are an illustrator and you've had the pleasure of working with Astrid Lindgren for many years. Um, and I even had to just go to my um, mm. my kid's bookshelf and and yeah, you are, you know, in many bookshelves around both in Sweden, but also around the world. Um, your books have been translated in many languages as well. Um, so did you like how how did you were you always an illustrator how did that start off for you uh, I started very young my debut with Astrid Lindgren was when I was only 24 so I um yeah I went to the art academy and after that I became an illustrator and also a writer of children's books so I 
do both. And um, yeah, so I, you can say I have always been an illustrator, but I've also done lots of other things besides of illustrating books. And that's maybe what we are going to speak about today a little. Absolutely. Yes. And I mean, you've been an illustrator for so long. Um, But as we spoke about yesterday, your path into becoming, uh, you know, an an activist was a little bit maybe unplanned. Um, So could you share a little bit about sort of, you've built a very impactful creative career, um, could you share a little bit about what sort of sparked your journey as a change maker? Was there a specific point in time or a specific experience that that sort of um, yeah just made you feel like you really needed to do something something more impactful as well? Yeah, maybe maybe it was already when I was a child that I I grew up in the seventies and it was really a period of feeling. Yeah, we were demonstrating against uh, lots of different things. And we knew also as children that there was lots of poverty and there were big problems of wars in the world. And I I felt, of course, as a child, very powerless. And um, But I remember when I finished the art academy that I felt like I cannot only illustrate books. I mean, it's nothing. I, I have to do something more. But I didn't know how I worked a little for the Red Cross and for UNICEF, but it wasn't much more than that. And then later, um, I was invited by Doctors Without Borders to visit Burundi, uh, which was in 2005 or six, I think. And it was just after the civil war. And I think that was the first time that I really saw, um, yeah, a total different world, I can say. I saw, of course, lots of poverty and I I saw, yeah, the reality, the real world. And after that, something changed in my mind. I had already children myself. I lived in the Netherlands and also in Sweden. And then I think I started to prepare for something that came later. And that was in 2015. Uh, I was already involved in different things. I started up uh, working in Iran with book promotion project for children uh, in very poor areas. And um, I did lots of things already. But then in 2015, 14, 15, when I saw all the people coming to Europe from the war, especially in Syria, but also Afghanistan and Iraq, and I suddenly saw the children on the photos in the newspapers, and I saw this, and I had my own children at home, and then suddenly I could not see anything else than the children on these photos. And I really realized what these children, that these children in a way never had been children. Maybe some had been for a while, but, but, and then I thought, okay, I go to the nearest, uh, closest uh, refugee camp. So I went there with only papers and uh, draw, some drawing materials, some pencils, not much more. And then, Was this in, in the Netherlands or in Sweden? Uh, it started in Sweden, uh, but later I also went in the Netherlands. So I started in Sweden, yeah, only in my village. I have a house in the wood in Sweden 
in Östergötland and in the village, it's only a few thousand uh, people living there, there came several camps, So, but there was especially one, and I think 70 people were living there, many families. So it was very easy. It was also very open. So I went there and I started to draw uh, with the children. Uh, drawing is a very good way of uh, coming closer because, yeah, you need no language. But of course, uh, I also learned to know their parents and we became friends in a way. Uh, and we started to eat together and to talk together if, if possible. <laughs> and uh, I also had uh, young people from the camp who helped me with translating because sometimes, of course, I, I wanted to speak really to the children and also to the grown-ups. Uh, and so, yeah, in fact, the next story starts. And that is that I learned to know one guy and he spoke, he was in the twenties and he spoke eight languages oh, wow. uh, and English. Uh, I say English is also a language, but I mean, he could speak uh, Arabic and also Turkish and Dari, Farsi, Naya, Urdu, several languages. So he was perfect for me uh, for translating uh, when I did these workshops because the children really wanted me to come and to draw mm. with them. And then uh, one day uh, I found out he was from Afghanistan. Uh, and when all the Syrian people had their uh, residency and they started to build up their lives, uh, then, uh, yeah, this boy, I met him one year after I worked with him in the camp. I went back to that camp and I only, yeah, to see how it was there and who was still there. And then I met him and I can say I didn't recognize him first because mm. he looked like an old man and he was only maybe 25 or something like that. And then I asked him, of course, well, what, uh, why are you here? And, and yeah, in the beginning I thought that he also was going back only to see some people. And then uh, he said, yeah, I got my uh, second negative. If I get the third one, I'm going to be deported to Kabul. And then what he said, death is waiting for me in Kabul. Hmm. And I, I was confused. I, I, I said, death is waiting for you in Kabul? I mean, uh, I honestly, I didn't understand because all my Syrian friends, they all had residency. And I thought, yeah, if death is waiting for you, you also get residency because then you are a real refugee. Uh, so I only asked him for his phone number. I didn't have his phone number before. And I asked him for his phone number and I went back to the Netherlands at that time because it was uh, in May, I remember. And then I kept contact with him. So I started to ask him, did you already get a decision? No, no, didn't get. Uh, and then when I went back again to Sweden, I uh, immediately called him and I said, are you still there? Yes, I'm still there. Uh, and then I, I, in fact, the first day I went to that camp again, then I met him and then he was like shaking and he was so skinny and, and he looked like, yeah, ill, seriously ill. And I remember I sat down with him and I asked him, tell me, 
what is happening? And then he had his third negative and he started to tell me for hours his story. And it was such a terrible story that I realized when I drove home that this man is really never going to survive. If he is deported, he's immediately uh, killed. Um, I cannot tell his story here in this podcast because I think he can still be in danger, even if he's now mm -hmm. safe. Um, he is safe. I will tell about that later, after yeah. seven years. So that's, yeah, that was the start. Yeah. And, and just also to give a little bit of a perspective, I might even record a little, little piece to add to this podcast just about the situation since 2015 in Sweden, um, mm -hmm. because Sweden has uh, for a long time been uh, an, a country that has really, um, you know, been on the forefront for human rights and, um, you know, asylum rights has been a part of that. Um, when the Syrian crisis, I mean, when the war in Syria we offered, you know, a lot of, of a lot of refugees um, a permanent residency immediately because there is a war going on. Um, whereas Afghans who came after 2015 have had a completely different experience, um, where they've lived many, many, many years here in insecurity, and I mean that's that's really what you've been so active active in as well. Um, and I've been active in it on, on my part, and I've been following you in this journey as we've, you know, I've um, been a part of writing a book about, about this as well, or a chapter in a book. And um, so, I mean, we have, you know, this perspective, and I just wanted to give that, that you know, perspective that Sweden has changed since 2015. Um, yeah. And and a lot has has happened in society, which has been very detrimental for refugees who mm -hmm. are coming here, um, and yeah. their human rights are not being um, taken, you know, um, seriously. No, and I I think this is so interesting what you tell because in fact this also happened in me because I. I was this person who was welcoming, like Sweden did in 2015. Yeah. I felt like, okay, we are going to do our best. We are going to help them to find their ways to understand the, the, how it works with the schools mm. and the jobs and the language and everything. And then suddenly when I met this boy and I was totally confused because I felt like, I mean, the story he was telling me was much worse than of my Syrian friends, even if that was already totally yeah. terrible. And then, so I honestly, I didn't understand it. I thought this is a mistake. This is something, it cannot mm. be true in my country, my country, yeah. Sweden, which, huh, as you describe it, is the country of protecting human rights. So I started, but when I drove home, I realized one thing, and that is he cannot stay in that camp because I knew that the migration, uh, yeah, migration circuit, migration mm. board, I don't know how you say it in English, they are going to send the border police to have a look if he's still there, if they really want mm. to deport him. And so he cannot be there anymore. Uh, so when I drove back to my home, I realized I have to hide this mm. person or I have to ha find a hiding place for him. 
Um, so that was the first step, in fact, uh, in what I did. I felt if he is safe, then we can start to find out why this went wrong, mm. in fact. And at that time, I thought, okay, if I have a good lawyer, then they will save him easily, of course, because he has the right to get protection. Mm. So that was step one. Um, so so it started. Uh, he started to hide first in another place, then in our place, when I felt that uh, I was afraid. Yeah? I mean, I was afraid that they were going to come to my house, the, the border police also, because that has happened a lot in Sweden. Uh, but after some weeks, I felt like, okay, I think if they wanted to come, they had already been here. Uh, and then I brought him to my house and we found a new lawyer. But that was much more difficult than I thought. And then his friends started to come in the same yeah. situation. And they were also in mm. danger. I mean, there was a women's rights activist from Afghanistan, mm. the son of an interpreter for ISAF. Yeah. I mean, he also get, got no mm. protection. And several others who had been caught by Taliban for many days. Mm. And, and I mean, it was a total miracle that they survived uh, and yeah. they got no protection. Yeah. yeah. So that was mm. the start. And it's, it's, it was such a quick shift in Sweden. I think it, as you as you're explaining, we didn't really even you know follow along what was happening. But since then, these Afghan refugees have really been sort of in the forefront of politics of like describing our country in a very negative light. They have you know mm. endured so much discrimination since they came here, um, and and mm. the processes for you know getting. Uh, even getting asylum uh, is very, very difficult. Um, and then permanent residency or resident, permanent residency isn't even in the picture for many still, uh, but a residency permit. Um, so uh, you, this summer, um, uh, we've, you know, gone through the Swedish election. Um, and at the same time, you launched a, a, an installation, an art project um, in Stockholm called The Big Loss. Um, and it's really about these Afghan refugees. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, what followed after this first period was that we lost the fight, yeah. you can say, in Sweden. We did everything we could with lawyers, with the, the politicians, with the... Naya, everything, with demonstrations, you, you know, all the activist thing that normal that you do to try to change something, but it was not, it didn't work. So all the guys that I helped, and in the end it was, I don't know how many, uh, maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I don't know really, uh, friends of friends, it was often, and they uh, started to leave from Sweden, they escaped, they fled to other European countries, most of them to France, some to Belgium, one to the Netherlands. He's living in my house here now. Um, and then I was in Sweden uh, and I realized that I really missed them. They had been in our house for 
several years and they had been living with us. Yeah, they were officially hiding sometimes, but of course you don't feel like that. It doesn't feel like somebody's hiding. He's your guest and, and you have fun together and you have a good time. And suddenly yeah, they were all gone. And I, it was so empty in our house. And even if I have two daughters, I mean, they also had lots of fun with all these guys and they were always helping my husband and doing things. And I felt like, no, it's not only that they are gone, it's also that they are still not safe and that I don't know if they ever can return to my house. And my house, they call my house home, sweet home. It was really the place where they yeah. felt safe. And I was so sad. I was so extremely yeah. sad. I mean, I was really sitting yeah. crying. And I felt that this is, I mean, we were so close to each other. And in, at the same time in the Swedish politics, they are saying that these people cannot integrate. They, we don't understand. They are criminals. They are yeah. everything. Huh? And, and at the same time, um, I felt yeah. opposite. And then I realized that the boys I helped not only boys, some were young men, they at least were still okay. They were in Europe mm. somewhere. But others were deported. Yeah. They were started, uh, they, went, they left again from Afghanistan trying to find mm. safety. They were hiding, some were killed. There were even people killed in Afghanistan after deportation. And many, many, many uh, did yeah. suicide in, uh, in Sweden, committed yeah. suicide. And then I realized, like, yeah, if that happens to you, I also was very close to it, one mm. of the guys. Uh, then, yeah, it's so terrible. So I started in my mm. studio to make a kind of boards, uh, write texts about these guys who left. A kind of, yeah, what shall I say, memory text or where I told, like, yeah, <laughs> very simple, I miss you. Uh, you did this, this, this in Sweden. You were here for five years. You were part of our family. And now you're gone. And I really hope that you can find safety or something like that. Different texts. And then I realized I'm totally not alone in this. I mean, uh, there are hundreds of people, maybe thousands, teachers, families, where these people lived in the family for maybe for yeah. four years and then deported mm. when they yeah. turned 18. And they came as young children, 13 years old, who lived with Swedish sisters mm. and brothers. And then 18 years old, they got a birthday present to be deported to the war and the Taliban mm. was taking over. And it was, so then I collected, um, text from 150 people in Sweden who were in my situation and even worse, I must say. And they wrote beautiful texts about, yeah, different people who were mm. lost, you can say. And I wrote all these texts on boards, 500 boards, in the end 502, because there were two in the end who committed suicide and I had to add them also. And then I went uh, to the parliament in Stockholm and I was sitting on the International Refugee Day. Uh, it was 20th of June and two days more uh, outside the parliament with these 500 boards. Uh, uh, and only sitting there, uh, 
and talking to uh, different members of parliament mm. and in the end also to the prime mm. minister about yeah what had happened mm. in sweden so that was yeah my installation yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah it was a way of showing uh, something terrible and also something yeah. beautiful because we miss them as if they mm. are yeah, family yeah. members. And, uh, yeah, as you say, it's it's something beautiful how, you know, in 2015, so many people mobilized. And it was, you know, this beautiful thing of how, you know, people opened their homes and their hearts um, and did things really as, you know, as welcoming a brother into our, our family. And, mm. um, and really civil society did so much. But... But Sweden really let us down um, and let, especially not us, but but the refugees who came here. Um, so what did, did you, did you, I mean, you met the prime minister. Did you get any response? I mean, do you feel like you got any, any connection and any, did, do you feel like the installation, of course, it was a, a matter of, of sharing stories and just acknowledging that these people exist and they're important. Um, but I think, I mean, being outside of Parliament, it is also a, a sort of a, a political protest in a way. Yeah, it was, of course. Did you? I mean, did you feel like you got any response that you were looking for? And did, was there, you know, others who, who didn't respond um, that you were hoping? Yeah, um, it was, first of all, it was necessary to do this for the whole group who lost people. It yeah. was a kind of um, memorial place I mean we went uh, many people came from the whole country mm. to see this and to be together yeah and maybe I mean some cried they were standing crying together mm. um so that was very important and it was allowed I mean nobody could take this from us and uh, nobody can blame you if you sorrow, if you feel uh, yeah, sad, or if you miss, or if you feel this lost. Mm. Um, but then I saw the political, of course, the, the members of parliament from the uh, left parties who had been fighting for these people for years. Uh, they were happy in a way, because they felt like here, okay, here is the, the proof of what really happened. Mm. And, yeah, I spoke, of course, a lot to them, and and they, yeah, they were happy that we showed this. Of course, they they also they fight inside that building in the parliament, but they, yeah, they need us also to show what is the reality. And we are totally. I mean, I you say I'm an activist, but honestly, I still not feel like an activist. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm an illustrator, I'm a writer, and I am a human who had to do some things. Yeah. But, I mean, it was not my choice to do this. Uh, it had been much better if I could illustrate some more Astrid Lindgren books or whatever. Mm. But, and the same for the people who were there. I mean, it was ordinary teachers, uh, social workers, um, families who opened their homes and who, who invested a lot in these young people and who were, have been sitting for hours and hours uh, teaching them Swedish and mm. yeah, really taking them on holiday, uh, doing everything to, to let them become a kind of yeah, part of our society. Mm. And so the 
politicians spoke with these people. I had a kind of team around me all the time, like five, six helpers who also spoke with the people who passed by. Then, of course, you had also the rights parties who were not so interested in this installation. Mm. And there I felt it was like ooh, they, they tried to run um, with the phone, like running, passing by this installation as quick as possible so that I didn't have, uh, yeah, that I couldn't speak with them. Mm. I spoke to a few of them and that was, yeah, I must say, total different reactions. Some were kind of open, uh, but then they started to say like, yeah, I'm not a member of parliament anymore after summer, so I cannot do anything. But there was also one woman I spoke with from the moderate party, Moderatina, mm. and she was uh, totally cold. Mm. Uh, she was she didn't want to hear this story. Um, I I think uh, yeah I felt satisfied after because there came, there came of course also many tourists, Swedish people, people, foreigners, and most of them were in shock. Yeah because they didn't know this story. Mm. And I saw especially people who came as refugees maybe 20 years ago uh, or longer. I mean, they were crying, they were starting mm. hugging me. They were, it was like a lot of emotions mm. there. And and yeah, so I felt, I was so happy that I really could could show this and tell this story. And especially because of all these guys or or girls, because mm. it's not only boys, of course. And then they are, they have no voice at all. Mm. And now we could show our, yeah, in fact, also our love to them. Yeah. We could show them that we really miss them. Mm. And one of the problems for many of these people is that they mean nothing yeah. for people. Yeah. They mean really nothing. Mm. That's also what I saw with the guys who, who came to my house, that... I mean, if you lose so much in your life, and sometimes you know, yeah, they lost their whole family, or even their own family wanted to kill them, or and then it, yeah, then then this means a lot. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I was satisfied after. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful way of taking back the stories, you know, taking back the narrative because I feel like yeah. so often, or the past few years their voices and their stories and the narratives of refugees have been hijacked by the politicians and by the media and have been yeah. used as a way to win political ground. And it's been yeah. disgusting to watch how these mm. hum human lives have been destroyed mm. um, as mm. a result. And mm. it's so beautiful to do such a thing, Moritz, to really you know, take back those stories and just show that these are real people and we love them. Um, yeah. and that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're in a situation in Sweden, you know, the elections didn't turn out so well. Um, the Sweden Democrats who are really, a a, a, a party that's, you know, has neo-Nazi roots, um, and is very against immigration, um, completely, <laughs> mm. um, is now the second largest party in Sweden. And, you know, it's difficult, I think, to to still feel hope um, in these times and to know what to do. Um, how do you remain hopeful? Um, I, I think that uh, there is one positive thing here, uh, very strange, but it is that uh, 
the Sweden Democrats, uh, I mean, in all the newspapers in other countries, there's now written, okay, the, the Nazi party is uh, second biggest in Sweden. And uh, it started, I mean, I lived in Sweden in the 90s in Stockholm. I was building a, a children's culture house then. I was designing it Jönebäcken, mm. in Stockholm. And I lived in the old city in Gamla Stan. And there the, the neo-Nazis were walking beneath my, below my house and the sidewalk and, and screaming like Sieg Heil and that kind of things. And I was totally shocked because I grew up for, yeah, in the Netherlands. And I mean, in the Netherlands, if you say this in the street, I mean, I, I will not say that you are going to be killed, but we can call the police or we can do mm. something. I mean, it's really not, you cannot do that mm. after the Second World War. I mean, my, my own grandmother, she was hiding Jews. And I, I mean, I, I really have this in my roots that you, there are things you are not going to say. And now suddenly the party that started from there is the second party in Sweden. Mm. And I think that uh, more and more people start to be aware of this, mm. that it's really not okay that this party is, is ruling the country. And it's also kind of, yeah, it's dangerous. And um, a long time, uh, okay, the activists were, of course, knowing already how it was with the migration. And, but many people didn't know at all, like me. I mean, I didn't know when I heard about this Afghan boy who suddenly got a negative when he had needed protection. And I, I think many people are now suddenly not trusting anymore that it's going to be so fair. And uh, I hope that we find each other and that we become bigger. Mm. But at the same time, of course, uh, we are worried. And especially, I mean, I have still... Friends, refugees in Sweden, and also who are not totally safe, mm. and of course they are they are very worried. Mm. They uh, they call me and say like, oh, can they change laws and can they do this and this? Mm. And next week or this week, I'm going to speak again with a lawyer about one of them to to really be sure that nothing is going wrong in his case mm. now mm. after the elections. Yeah. So, but I think. Where if we find each other and if we are more aware that we really have to fight together for the democracy and our rights, yeah, it can become more strong. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, yeah. In one way, it's, it's a horrible, horrific wake up call for many people yeah. who have taken, you know, our security for granted and our rights for granted and exactly. our global solidarity for granted um mm. so i think yeah it, it definitely is i mean there is something positive to come out of it um so do you have any i mean you talk about the stories and and the people and the connections is that the hope that you're feeling is through the people who are also active and the refugees themselves connecting with them um, or do you have any other advice for others who are feeling, you know, a sense of hopelessness of how to sort of rebuild that hope? Yeah, of course, meetings are extremely important now mm. during this period. So um, 
for example, the big loss is now uh, going to travel to Göteborg, to Gothenburg, and showed in a in a kind of cultural center. And there, I'm sure many people are coming only to meet and to speak again and to feel that we are a big group that that really want to change Sweden again. Mm. I mean, we want to go back again to 2015 or or to that uh, way of 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 believing in that we can share our country with others mm. who are in need. Mm. Uh, so I think that is extremely important. But what is also important is that we, uh, if we feel this solidarity with people who came as refugees, for example, um, then we really must show that. We must we must meet, go on meeting them and, and show them that they are the part of our country and and our that they have the right to be here here and that we that we will protect them if they are if uh, if changes are coming or so i feel um yeah that so meetings are are in fact now the most important mm. and and uh and daring to to show all the time to speak and yeah. to to speak with your neighbors to speak about there are very very many people who don't know yeah i mean many people who voted for this swedish uh, sweden democrats they are um yeah they are voting because they want a lower petrol price or they want yeah, there are many reasons to vote for them. It's not always about the migration. Mm. I mean, I think many people have no idea what this party really can do yeah. to a country. Mm. And um, so we must go on. And that is maybe the most difficult to speak with the people who are on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, to 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 dare mm. to speak to them. I, even for me, it's, yeah. it's, it can be hard. Yeah. But uh, that is maybe why I don't want to call myself an activist because I feel, no, I'm normal. Mm. I'm only a normal human mm. who behaves like totally normal, mm. not extreme, not mm. I protect the rights of the people who have, yeah, mm. who are rightless mm. and not more than that. Yeah. Just, you know, having these, these conversations for me, I mean, after the election, I just felt I need, like, if for my own personal sake and to build solidarity, I need those meetings with others who also, you know, feel the same as me right now. Mm -hmm. But I know mm -hmm. that that must end and we must, you know, uh, not end, but it can continue. But we also need to have those connections with, with other people in Sweden who don't yeah. understand or don't see things at this, in the same way or don't, you know, know the stories mm -hmm. um, and to have those conversations um, and yeah, but Julia, the strange is that, for example, I illustrated a book of Astrid Lindgren, The Red Bird. It's about two orphans who come to a farmer. It's, it's really, they lost everything. It's totally terrible. And the beautiful part in the book is that in the end, they come to a place where the sunny meadow, where everything is. It's, it's like a paradise. And there is a mother. They lost their mother. There is food. There is playing. There is freedom. There is everything. All people in Sweden love this story. Mm. It's like, it's their story. It's the story about 
finding peace for people who are in in a total terrible situation. So it is the story about these people. And what I thought about now is to make an exhibition of the originals of this story. It's only a very small thing that I want to do now, maybe in uh, my own village. Uh, where many people voted for this uh, Sweden Democrats, and then speak about this story. Mm. Like, what is it about, in fact? Mm. Why do we love this story? And why can't we understand that this is part of how we must behave? Mm. I mean, it is not a story about that we only can have blonde children with blue eyes in our sunny meadow. Mm. No, it is about... so. That kind of things I I want to continue, but mm. you, the very very important is that if you get hate, I also I'm got a lot of hate, uh, especially in social media. But that you meet it not with hate, yeah. of course not. Mm. I mean, I am never shouting to somebody, or if somebody hates me really on social media, and then I say, but what is the what is happening to you? I mean. Mm. You, it looks like you are really feeling very bad. Why do you have so much hate in your body? I mm. mean, I only try to protect people who are in really terrible situations. Mm. And yeah, so, and that is extremely important. Yeah. Try to be stay all the time the person who is polite, respectful to others, and asking mm. questions, mm. not blaming. Asking questions. Yeah. Why? I mean, there are reasons why people voted for this party, and mm. that's also very important. Yeah. Um, and the same, I also try with people who are refugee that that you try to speak with them and say, like, okay, uh, yeah, how can your voice? Uh, I mean, you also have to stay polite, and you have to stay. I mean, it's not that it's going to become a fight. If we start to fight, mm. then we will never win. Yeah. Yeah, and that's extremely important. Yeah. So, do you have any other sort of? I mean, we've talked about the meetings, and we've talked about you know the the things that give us hope. Um, but do you have any other sort of self care practices to make sure that you refill your energy so that you can continue to be that light and continue to be you know meeting people with love and and being that open heart to so many people um, and yeah. continue to have you know inspiration in the work that you do as well um Um, yeah i think in my situation i i realized one day that i cannot go on helping one more helping one more uh, trying to find safety for this 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 person and then it's going to be a full-time job and also i'm going to be destroyed myself by emotions because it is extremely hard to 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 try to save somebody who is in such a hard situation. So I said to myself, okay, I have my working days. That is drawing, writing, maybe making making this kind of installation that's also connected to what I saw. But at the same time, in the evening, it's my hobby to, to have all these people. And these people, it's not only helping. I mean, it's my they are my friends. So for example, the people who are now in Paris, and most of them are in safety now, one after the other. Uh, for example, the person who everything, uh, which it started with, with, who spoke these eight languages or 10 languages, 
he uh, he's now in safety as permanent refu- uh, uh, residency. And yeah, I'm going to visit them. I'm going to see their new lives. I've been already two times in Paris and we have lots of fun. And we, so yeah, you must try to focus on the parts. Where can you find your energy? Mm-hmm. You can find energy, what you say, with other activists or people who are trying to, to solve the problems uh, in the same way as you want to do it yourself. You can find energy in maybe your work uh, and and then also in the meeting with these people, mm-hmm. uh, which, yeah, and that is a lot already. And then you must protect yourself a little. For example, I'm on Twitter and on Twitter, it's a lot of hate. And there, sometimes I say, okay, now I take half an hour and I'm going to block 200 people. And then I block 200 people who, and then I also write like, okay, who is not polite or respectful to me, I block. And then I block them all. And then that is, I'm not even reading what they wrote. Yeah, of course I read because I know they were not polite, but it is a kind of protection. And then I try not to think too much about that. I park it somewhere. Okay, that was part of my... Yeah. And so uh, in the beginning, when I just started, I was often crying. I was not sleeping. I was totally on it because and it was like a child who suddenly find out that the world is totally different than I thought. Mm. I couldn't trust my own world anymore. Mm. But now I know. And of course, I knew already the whole world is filled with wars and uh, people are not equal treated. And yeah. And now I accept it more and I see, okay, I try to do what is within my, uh, yeah, I have some possibilities. I can do this, but I can maybe not do that and that. Mm. And then I accept that I only can do this. I cannot change the world. I cannot. Mm. But I can do my little circle. And if everybody do a little circle, then maybe Mm. lots of changes are going to come. So, Yeah. yeah, it is kind of searching all the time mm. for a balance mm. yeah yeah I mean th- I think those boundaries are so important because I feel like when you have you know a lot of passion and you feel like there's so much that you really want to do and you see all of the injustice and it makes yeah. you angry and upset um taking that time to self reflect on yourself and and understand okay this is this is my mission and this is enough. Yeah. And this is yeah. these are the boundaries that I can set. So to those who perhaps feel like they have, you know, a creative passion, maybe they have a hobby, maybe they have something that they would like to build a career on um, with their creativity. Um, can you share a little bit of, of what what can help them to sort of use the skills and the and the the gifts and the the passions that they have um, to sort of, uh, yeah, to, to just follow those, those um, tools and use it to um, both yeah. create, build a career, but also, you know, have an impact. I think, first of all, you must always, when you make art, uh, write or, or draw or paint, or you must go into yourself, deep into yourself. And maybe it starts with that you have to tell your own story. Maybe you went through something yourself and you have to find out who you are. And that story is, for me, the most important, that you try to find your own story. 
then at the same time you live and you live in a world where a lot is crazy. And I think that if you live in a very open way and, and never try to uh, <laughs> do this, uh, then keep your eyes open, then these things will automatically come into your art in one way or another, but you cannot force it. I would never say to people, okay, start. If you have a talent for drawing, make cartoons about the political situation. No, 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 no. No, try to tell the story that is the most important for you at that moment. I mean, Astrid Lindgren, she told about the brothers Lionheart, the fight against Katla and Tengil, and, and it is such, it is a story about a war, about a terrible Second World War and other wars. And it's a universal story because of that. But I don't think that she thought, I'm going to make a story that can change the world. No, she wanted to tell the story that was the strongest mm. in her. And, um, but open eyes, never, never run away for, from things that are difficult because if they are difficult, try to catch them and to use mm. them in one way or another. Um, even if you start crying and you think this is a terrible thing, I cannot do anything, let it only be in your body or in your brain or wherever, <laughs> your soul, and one day mm. it can come out. Uh, so, yeah, but forcing it yeah, doesn't, of, mm. mostly it doesn't mm. work really. So, uh, yeah, it's true that, 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 what I saw with the installation in uh, the big loss in uh, outside the parliament was that we did so much these years. I only I also started with some people, an activist group, and we wrote articles and we spoke with all these politicians and we had meetings and we and with the migration board and we, uh, now yeah, we did everything for hours, hours, mm. hours, and then the art where you catch one emotion in a very short text it, every board is a is a person is a book is a story a terrible story uh, and is a meeting between two people and that yeah turned out for me to be a stronger way of express myself than all these mm. articles yeah wow Marit, yeah. you are an inspiration and I'm so incredibly thrilled that we could have this conversation. Um, I must say that this podcast is definitely something that I'm doing for myself just as much as I'm doing for the community. Um, being able to have these conversations gives me so much energy and I'm so grateful for what you do and, you know, the work that you'll continue to do um, for refugee rights and and those who who are not being prioritized right yeah. now. Um, and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story and inspiring our global community. Yeah, as well. fantastic that you do this <laughs> with many people. <laughs> Thank you. I have so much respect and gratitude for Marit and the work that she does here in Sweden and around the world. The Big Loss, her exhibition that she held outside of the parliament in Sweden this summer, will open in Gothenburg on December 17th at Frölunda Culture House and will be shown until the 22nd of January 2023. It is such an 
important exhibition. And I hope that if you are in Sweden and near Gothenburg, that you take the opportunity to go see it. Marit continues to write and illustrate books, and you can find more about her and her books at marittunquist.nl. I will share the links in the show notes. So in regards to our conversation today about refugee rights and about the situation for refugees in Sweden and in Europe, um, I just thought that it could be helpful to have a little bit more information and facts um, and knowledge, as Marit uh, mentioned. So to just equip you with a little bit more, I just wanted to share a few facts um, that I've taken and compiled um, from UNHCR and different um, sources and are actually bulleted in a chapter of the book 2015, um, Till asylrättens försvar in Swedish. Um, it is a book for the defense of the right to asylum. Um, so I'll just share a little bit here. At the end of 2020, um, about 82.4 million people had been forced to flee their homes. Um, and more than half of those are refugees, internal refugees within their own countries. Um, Asylum seekers are people who are outside of their home country and um, are seeking international safety um, and are waiting for their status as refugees. Um, the asylum seekers are about 4.2 million people globally, and this was when the book was written um, and before the, the crisis in Ukraine. Um, before the situation in Pakistan, before a lot of um, things are happening. So it's definitely something that may be increasing. Um, about 80% of refugees live in countries that are close or have a border with their home country. Um, a third of all refugees in the world come from the world's poorest countries. And in 2018, every other refugee was a child. The International Organization for Migration um, estimates that over 22,900 people have died or disappeared in the Mediterranean Sea since 2014. The largest group of people who are seeking safety in Europe after a crossing of the Mediterranean are from Afghanistan. This war-torn country is one of the world's most dangerous countries. And a UN report shows that more people died, uh, more civilians died in the country in 2018 than during any other year pr prior to that. And that an increasing number of children are casualties. Sweden today is deporting more than half of the asylum seekers from Afghanistan many with the motivation that their stories aren't trustworthy, according to the Migration Board. This shows that there's an incredible large lack of knowledge of what is happening in the situation in Afghanistan. A report that was released in Sweden in 2018 shows that there are alarming levels of suicide among refugee children who have come to, to Sweden on their own. Sweden also deports other groups of people who are under extreme threat in Afghanistan, including uh, Christians, others who have left their uh, Islamic religion, LGBTQI individuals, and uh, those from Hazare minority group. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hey Changemaker with me, Julia Wicklander. It's been an honor to have you along with me, learning and growing as a changemaker. If you know of anyone who would appreciate to join us on this journey, please share this episode with them. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, please rate and review this podcast. That way, more people can find it. Let's build solidarity to create ripple effects of positive change around the world. Remember, you are powerful. You're a change maker. <laughs>